0: Welcome to episode number 45 of the Fiduciary you podcast. I've broken this one into two parts, so make sure you check both of them out. You won't want to miss either one. My guest today is Bonnie Treichel from Endeavor Retirement. I've been a fan of Bonnie's for some time, and she is seemingly everywhere these days, sharing her thought leadership as well as her practice management tools and resources for advisors. She's one of the voices in the retirement industry that I greatly admire, and listeners will glean a lot of wisdom from this episode. Bonnie has a unique background as both an ERISA attorney and a former advisor, and it shows in how she communicates her ideas, philosophies, and methodologies. On the show, we do a deep dive into hot fiduciary topics like ESG, guaranteed income, an implementation framework for Secure uh, Secure 2.0, the benefit of developing what she calls a partnership wheel, the highs and lows of the startup journey, and much more. So with that introduction, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bonnie Treichel. Bonnie Treichel, welcome to the Fiduciary you podcast. I am super excited that you are on the show today.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I've been a, a Josh Itso fan for a while, so I'm excited to be here.
0: <laughs> I think I can count the Josh Itso fans on one hand. So thank you for being part of that small but exclusive, uh, that exclusive club. I appreciate that. And, and the feeling is, uh, the feeling's mutual, um, uh you know, we had a chance to run into each other uh, a few weeks ago out in San Diego at the Viking Cove Institute uh, Summit that they had and and uh, had a chance just to kind of reconnect and then uh, have had a couple of conversations since then, which is really good. And, and I'm excited about the show today. I think um, uh, you're doing some incredible stuff out in the industry. It seems like you are uh, you're everywhere, um, which is really exciting. And, you know, the more that we talk, just the more impressed I am. Uh, not just about what you say, but really about how you think. And so, you know, we're going to touch on things like ESG today. We're going to touch on guaranteed income. Uh, we're going to touch a little bit maybe on secure act. Um, but not in kind of the traditional, uh, uh traditional way that, that everybody's got secure act fatigue from LinkedIn. Um, but more around strategy and, uh, then probably just talk a little bit about business and 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 lessons learned and and uh, we both kind of live the startup life and so uh, today will be a good a good conversation so uh, excited to uh, to dive in um, and maybe a good place to start um, most people know you I think that listen to this show but why don't you just give a brief little you know kind of bio background how have you gotten to where uh, to where you are.
1: Absolutely. Well, once again, thanks for having me today. Um, So I am from the Midwest originally, spent 15 years on the West Coast, and have recently made my way back to the Midwest. So um, I am an ERISA attorney and have also spent time as an advisor. I now have a consulting firm, Endeavor Retirement, and our primary service is targeted at uh, independent advisors and giving them the tools and resources that they need to succeed, and have recently also opened a law firm uh, to, again, really support the retirement plan industry. So I'm um, excited to continue to be able to support independent advisors through uh, direct relationships and also through um, institutional channels as well.
0: Great. And, and, you know, it's really interesting, I think, um, the fact that you were an advisor. And, and you know, I know that, that for me as well with kind of what I do now in building FinTech is having lived the life and kind of sat in the seat uh, it gives you just a very different perspective than if you were just a consultant or just an ERISA attorney coming from kind of one uh, one angle. What were some of the best lessons that you learned uh, when you were an advisor? Um, obviously, being an ERISA attorney and advisor, you, you had a, a lot more arrows in your quiver, but what, was, what were some of the best lessons you learned uh, from your time being an advisor? And and why did you transition out of that? Why did um, uh, you decide maybe that wasn't for you?
1: Yeah, great qu- question. Um, so I've always kept my law license active, but one of the th- one of the, probably the biggest things I learned is that um, there were a lot of transferable skills from being an ERISA attorney to being an advisor and then back to the uh, attorney consultant path again. But one of the things that was really, really helpful uh, as an advisor, and then now that I'm in the capacity I'm in now, is that when I was an ERISA attorney the first time around, I always was giving accurate, technically sound advice, but I would suggest that some of it probably lacked some practical application. And what I mean by that is, you know, you look at um, at EPGERS, for example, and it's, you know, maybe you're dealing with a plan sponsor who has a million-dollar plan, and you look at EPCRs, and you're by the book, you're talking to them about a VCP filing, for example, and as I just mentioned, maybe a million dollar plan. And then it's like, wait a second, if I'm an advisor, I can still describe EPCRs and I can talk about self-correction and I can talk about VCP and audit cap, but then I put on a different hat as that advisor and say, you know, here's technically what you should do, but practically speaking, here's a little bit more of the practical application. And so it really helped me to get in the mindset of, oh wait, here's the real practical application of what this plan sponsor's dealing with. Um, Similar thing like when you're thinking about four quarterly meetings and meeting for an hour and a half to go through all of these things. Again, you have to really think about meeting your client where they are and the practical application of that. And so I think as an ERISA attorney, I was very rigid in the black letter of the law. And I'm never suggesting now that someone doesn't follow the law, but I think it really helped me to get a much better sense of what, and, and especially as a small business owner now, it helps me to get a sense of what the practical side of things is, and so that was a really helpful transition to take what I learned as an ERISA attorney and go be an advisor and get really the practical side of things, and now I really was able to see that there was this gap in the marketplace where there's some really great resources out there for fintech and for compliance and for, uh, like, sales and marketing, but there wasn't really this, um, you know, there wasn't this great practice management service side to help independent advisors. And so that's where I found there was an opportunity to fill that gap and then partner with others to provide a resource for independent advisors.
0: Yeah. I love that. I think, you know, the, the, um, and and I've seen this and, and having partnered with, you know, a lot of great ERISA attorneys over the years, you know, that kind of, that, that technician kind of working in the business, if you will, but you know a lot of decisions about plans are their business decisions and and you need to be able and being able to counsel the clients i love what you said is here's the technical and here's the practical and and you know what's what's the right business decision you know given the facts and circumstances that we're uh that we're dealing with and really being able to kind of uh make the complex simple you know it's it's funny people ask me now what I'm doing and and the way I describe it and actually when I think about you um, I, I might put you in the same camp I don't want to speak for you but you know I when people ask me what I what I do now I said well I used to be a mercenary like, <laughs> on the battlefield and now I'm more of a weapons manufacturer and an arms dealer like my job is to supply the troops and when I think about what you do and we'll get into that a little bit later in the show um, you know you're you you do some really awesome things for advisors in that independent advisor channel, uh, to really kind of supply them, to give them better weapons, if you will, it's their job to go out and kind of use those weapons on the battlefield. But, but I kind of see you in the same light as me. I do it from FinTech, you know, you do it from consulting and, and from content, but, um, uh, I do think probably for both of us having lived the life of an advisor, it just gives you a much broader, uh, uh, perspective that you can draw insights from, and and every time we've talked, I've I've kind of noticed that about you. So um, let's talk a- about a few topics. Let's start maybe with um, with ESG because I'd love to get kind of your perspectives, and I think uh, I think the audience would would get a lot of value from that. Obviously, ESG is something that's really really timely, um, and I know that you've been talking about that quite a bit with um, uh, with your clients. So. I'll tee you up, and and what are the most important things for advisors to know when it comes to ESG?
1: Yeah, no, uh, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about, and I've been talking about it for, you know, two or three years now. Um, One of the opportunities I've had to really start this conversation is through the National Association of Plan Advisors, and they have a certificate program uh, called the ESGK, And so it gives advisors a chance to really learn the basics of ESG. Uh, It's becoming really, really timely given the ESG final regulation that became effective right at the end of January. Um, One of the things I always start kind of a conversation around is I ask people, you know, kind of what their perspective is on ESG. And then I generally say, well, take what you think you know and throw it out and let's start over. And what I mean by that is many advisors have this perception um, that is really still more of a historical perception. And it's this notion that we're going to take someone's social preferences and we're going to put them into a retirement plan. And then that immediately lands in this conversation of, but like, how can we do that given our requirements to Uh, have a prudent process and do follow, you know, the duty of loyalty under ERISA section 404. So like, how do we reconcile these things? And so, you know, that's often the state of confusion of, you know, people are comfortable with it outside of a plan, but in the ERISA context, folks start getting pretty confused. And one of the things that I try to help um, people understand, and I think, you know, the Department of Labor did a better job with the final reg of starting to understand this, is this notion of, ESG integration. So there's different types of ESG, and it's not just divesting of what you thought from 15 years ago where we're just trying to say, you know, we don't like guns, we don't like tobacco, let's just find the fund that gets all of that out or as much of that out as possible because it's typically impossible to get all of that out, right? Um, So the goal is to help people understand that really um, when we think about it, we're looking at from the E, S, or G factor In active management, managers have probably been looking at at least some of these factors for a long time to figure out, do they add value or do they reduce risk to the portfolio? And then your job as an advisor is really to figure out which of those factors do you really think it's important for these managers to be looking at? And that can be different depending on the context. So, for example, what's important for a company, you know, in banking or that industry is going to be different than something in maybe farming, right? So it's, again, it's about the factors and what's really going to be a relevant factor given the industry. So that's a much different conversation than saying, hey, this company just likes, you know, trees and this other company likes this social value that's a pretty different conversation than saying, what actually is going to increase a return or reduce a risk? Um, And so I think when you get people to start to understand it's about really the actual increase of return or reduction of risk, that's a much different conversation than just what someone's personal preference is, because the pushback is generally, well, participants have a lot of different preferences. And so how do you reconcile all of those to get to the best outcome for the plan as a whole? Um, So I get that that can be somewhat of a a polarizing or political topic because we've seen a lot of that in the media, right? But I think when we get to what is really uh, financially in the best interest of participants from a risk-return perspective, that can shift the conversation. Um, Now, if we could get The legislators on the same page with that, given that since we've had the final reg, we've had um, uh, resolutions introduced in Congress to stop the final reg. We've also had a couple of different lawsuits, one of which is from 24 states attorney generals. That one, I think, uh, doesn't really have much of a leg to stand on, given the standing issue. Um, But we've also had some participants uh, in Minnesota who've also introduced um, a a lawsuit as well to put a stop to that um, final regulation. So I think that one could be a little bit more interesting. And, again, the argument is that the department has gone beyond uh, their authority in creating that final reg. So uh, definitely an interesting time to be talking about ESG.
0: What do you think in terms of, um, you know, so much of what I just heard you say, kind of this integration is really it's evaluating trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. And and really helping clients understand kind of what those trade-offs are and then helping them be in a position to make the right choice for their plan based on their set of circumstances, um, philosophies, whatever that looks like. Do you have any type of like, how would you recommend to an advisor, like a framework to actually engage in those conversations with their clients? Um, or to kind of work through what that that prudent decision-making process would look like?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think in many ways, the framework overall itself is going to look exactly the same. Um, and that might sound like I'm oversimplifying it, but one of the questions I get is, well, would we have a different IPS or investment policy statement or stated investment objectives if we were uh, looking at ESG funds versus non-ESG funds? Or would we have like two different investment policy statements? Absolutely not. Uh, you're going to use your same IPS. In my opinion, you'd have the same investment policy statement and you're following the same prudent process. The question is: Are you adding additional qualitative and quantitative metrics when you're doing that analysis? And so that um, can come in, you know, the form of maybe you're going to add some additional uh, qualitative metrics that you're going to ask the investment manager as as the advisor. You're going to ask the investment manager additional metrics, and so that is really where that that judgment comes in of the advisor of what do you think is going to be value added so to speak Um, i think from an ips standpoint i don't recommend adding too much to the ips Um, it really is more about rolling up your sleeves looking at the prospectus interviewing uh, the investment managers so a lot of times that's what you're doing when you're you know talking to active managers, right? And some of this comes down to, in some ways, you know, do you find value in active management or not? I think that's, that's again, where a lot of this conversation comes back to for some folks. Um, but I think it's keeping with the same framework and then figuring out, do you think that these uh, criteria can add um, return or reduce risk? And what does that look like to you in terms of adding some of these um, E, S, or G criteria to your qualitative and quantitative metrics, and there's okay. there's becoming some tools out there. I do think, in many ways, some of the um, tools and reporting is still catching up with the industry, so to speak. So I think that that's going to continue to evolve, um, but it, it's getting better. But there's still room for improvement.
0: Right. Yeah. I think uh, you know lots of advisors kind of use the off-the-shelf tools, um, kind of the formulaic, whether it's a a scorecard or a scoring system, or whatnot, um, which is more quantitative, probably than kind of the qualitative. Uh, you know, the qualitative, uh, the qualitative piece. Um, and you know, I think advisors. i my, my recommendation would be. You know, I still think that that ESG is, in many cases, it's going to be the exception for clients, not the rule. Um, it's obviously you know, I think demand will continue to grow, but I still see in a lot of advisors I talk to, you know, ESG is still a uh, more of kind of a niche type of thing. And it may come up with certain clients or certain clients that maybe are in certain industries. If you're dealing with a plan sponsor who works in the environmental industry, well, perhaps, you know, ESG is going to factor in, you know, there, maybe if it's a, uh, a nonprofit and you're, you know, um, you know, running their retirement plan that may that may factor in. I think what's, what, what's smart for advisors, you know, a lot of times, you know, the way that you scale is through systems and structures. And so, you know, it doesn't need to be this, ESG doesn't necessarily need to be this kind of like Chinese buffet, you know, uh, buffet, this huge menu, like figure out and try to build kind of your models. Like what's my non-ESG kind of, you know, preferred kind of model of a fund lineup. And what's my, you know, when ESG is kind of factored in. And I think what that will help you to do is you don't then necessarily need to, I don't want to boil it down to the kind of the, just the Henry Ford. Hey, you can have any ESG fund you want, as long as it's this one, but trying to limit, you know, I see a lot of advisors the way you, I know we did it with our own firm is, A long time ago, we said, look, we're not going to try to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of funds, you know, in our client base. It's just the due diligence requirements are way too hard. So we're going to have in most of my clients, you know, followed pretty much the same fund lineup. When we get a new plan before, if we couldn't remake the whole thing right away, you know, we kind of get there over time. But like when we could have a clean slate, we would have basically one fund lineup. That we would use, and that allowed us to scale. It took a lot of pressure off from a due diligence perspective because we had this kind of limited, more limited menu. And then for clients that maybe we 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 couldn't do a clean slate right away, we were driving towards that. Um, we were driving towards that uh, over time. And I, I think the same approach could apply to ESG, um, to ESG as well.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the goal you shouldn't be, I, I think where advisors get off track is they say, well, so-and-so has this social cause. They want to then bring that to the investment side of the house for the plan. And that's what this is not about, right? So it's about coming up with, you have this investment policy statement, and if that can meet the social causes of the plan, then that's great, but we still have to lead with the financial side of things. And so I think where advisors can make that, you know, kind of here's our ESG focus side of things, and the advisor believes that these things add value, then that's great, they can take that to the other side, but always coming back with, you know, this social cause or this environmental cause and doing that for each plan that dictates something I don't think that's scalable for the advisor, and I don't think it's in the spirit of doing what's in the best financial interests of the participants, which is what, again, I think we talked about this a little bit. This isn't, it, it is coined as an ESG regulation, but it applies to all investment responsibilities under ERISA Section 404. So it's about your investment responsibilities overall, not just doing something just for ESG
0: that can't, that can't rise above the prudent process. Um, Okay. I think that, I think that's a really kind of helpful perspective. Let's maybe transition, talk about guaranteed income. Um, Obviously that is, um, you know, it's interesting just in the industry and the industry gets fired up about things and and it, it always takes a lot more time for integration to take place. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think even about automatic features, right. Um, you know, automatic features, it, 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 when, when the pension protection act came out, um, that kind of greenlit auto features, it's still, there was an adoption process that, that, that took time. I mean, it was really, a you know, and, and not just a, you know, six month or an eight, 12 month or an 18 month, like there was a, a kind of a long runway. And I think the same thing around ESG, I think the same thing around guaranteed income as well. And I know that that you and my good friend, John Faustino and and um, I think Wade Fowle, there's this, uh, I think it's called RISA, Um uh, and retirement, maybe you can talk-
1: Retirement Income Style
0: Analysis. Okay. We, we love our acronyms in the industry. We love our acronyms. Um, you know, but guaranteed income, it's interesting. And maybe you can share, your perspectives on this is, uh, advisors are, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to kind of frame this diplomatically, um, the the evolution of product, we're still early innings of this. Um, you're starting to see more, you know, our mutual good friend, Matt Wolnowitz with Income America, and you're starting to see these guaranteed income products come out. And obviously record keepers, especially that are, um, uh, from an insurance background, you know, they're all about kind of their, their, they uh, they're salivating over the possibility of guaranteed income. It seems like the, um, advisors in some ways are kind of maybe a bit of an impediment to adoption, um, because they're very much slow playing, uh, not that guaranteed income, I think you said earlier before we started recording, it's important, but it's not urgent to advisors. So talk a little bit about what you're doing from a guaranteed income standpoint. Talk about RISA. Um, talk about what you think advisors should be thinking about as it relates to guaranteed income. And where do you see us in just kind of this evolution uh, of, of both in terms of, of product and um, but also appetite by plan sponsors and by advisors.
1: Yeah, so I think um, I think you phrased it pretty well when you said that in some ways it almost seems like advisors are. Um, I, I don't know if it's their the impediment to it, but I think advisors are the gatekeepers, and, and I think we've talked about this too, right? Like advisors really are like they are the first call um, or have the opportunity to really be the first call for plan sponsors. And so they are the gatekeeper, in my perspective, to the success of retirement income or guaranteed income solutions. Um, But I think for advisors, if I put myself in the advisor's shoe, their perception, from what I hear from talking to a lot of them, is guaranteed income is still too expensive, too complex, and not portable. So... Even as they start to learn about, well, there's these new solutions and all these new opportunities coming to market, I think it does still have this perception, and hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about maybe why some of those perceptions are wrong, but it has this perception of, wait, I'm going to learn all this new stuff because it is complex. I've got to learn all this new stuff, and then how do I get paid on it? So, yeah, it's important, but, like, why would I do it today? And I mean, I have to admit, so when I started kind of getting into this space um, before I really, you know, jumped in um, and, and started working on some of these projects, I had some of that perception, right? It's like, this is the new flavor du jour of the industry. And so, you know, this is what the industry is selling today and give it a couple of years and they'll be on to the next thing, right? Um, and crypto didn't work out. So now we're full force into this. Um, but I think... I've definitely changed I
0: think we're still in in pep land. I think that, (laughs) that, I think we're still dealing with peps, uh, in my opinion.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, and I think think a lot of advisors have that perception, right? Like there's always the flavor of the day. And am I going to really invest the time in it when, you know, there's fee compression and I've got all this other stuff going on. So, you know, tell me what I really have to invest the time into. Um, And I think for me, what I've really learned is, there is a real cost to participants of not embracing the urgency of today. And I think it's a prudential study that really does dig into some of the actual costs to a participant of not uh, having a guaranteed income offering. And I wish I had that data handy, but there, there is a cost to participants of waiting, you know, a certain amount of time to actually provide a guaranteed income solution. And the cost is dealing with things like, you know, we're dealing with inflation, we're dealing with market volatility, and when participants, for a certain demographic of participants, when they don't have that opportunity, then they're missing out. So, you know, the question is like, what is it that advisors have available to them to make this less complex, to understand how to actually run a prudent process? Because it is a, it is a lot to learn, and so what resources are available? Um, one of the things that you mentioned, John Faustino. Um, so, John headed up at uh, Broadridge FI360, the Retirement Income Consortium, and that's a group of member firms that came together to really help create one awareness of what retirement income solutions are out there, and two, a prudent process. So, I know also um, Fred Reich, uh who I think, Josh, you've done quite a bit of work with over time. Um, Fred, was one of them who vetted uh, the framework for prudent selection and monitoring of retirement income solutions. And that was a project that Blaine Aiken and myself and John worked on to really help create a process for advisors to go through to figure out, how do I actually vet these solutions? Because there's guaranteed solutions, there's non-guaranteed solutions, there's these managed payout options. How do you actually go through and figure out from a due diligence process, which one's the right one for your plan? Like, that's one big hurdle, right? It's the fiduciary concerns. So, that was one piece that the fiduciary or that the retirement income consortium did. Um, The other piece is um, making available this year a lot of different resources for advisors. So, um, an investment policy statement supplement, kind of an advisor playbook. So, we're working on like a five step process to just help with how do you educate? How do you amend your IPS. How do you go through the steps to make this more manageable? So I think that's one resource. It's all free for advisors, so you can access it at the FI360 website, and that's one place to get started. Another free resource is the National Association of Plan Advisors. Um, They'll have a certificate program where you can go through a series of modules, take your certificate, and then hopefully be able to learn about, like, again what is the language what's a prudent process how do I start to review these solutions and how do I talk to plant like plant sponsors and participants about
0: them what's the acronym they came up with for that certificate have they come up with an acronym yet um,
1: good question I'm <laughs> I'm the subject matter expert to write that okay I did see an acronym and it was not a good acronym okay all right all right um, I think it was RIP, Retirement Income Program.
0: That's awful. No, tell them they can't do that. <laughs> I was I mean, like, when you connotate death with guaranteed income, you're talking about the death of guaranteed so, income. Like that's awful. That, that, no, they can't do that.
1: I, say, I don't think that's been published. So I,
0: I'm okay. sure
1: there's a great acronym coming right. that advisors are going to love. Um, so there will be a certificate <laughs> program with an awesome okay. acronym coming soon.
0: Got it. All right. <laughs> um, Get on that.
1: So that's an educational opportunity, but I think, you know, getting back to like, okay, you know, why why do we even need these solutions? Who do, like, who do they apply to? Do they take away from wealth management business? And are they actually ever gonna be portable? I think those are all things that are percolating. It's like, okay, great, you told me there's education. You told me that, you know, I'm gonna have a prudent process for this, but like, still, why should I do this? Um, you know, I think those are all questions that I hear. Um, One of the things that I talk to folks about is that, you know, retirement income solutions or guaranteed solutions, they aren't for everyone, right? So um, it's thinking through who do they really apply to. Um, When you look at the demographics of a plan, you know, the person who has $2 million in their account at the end they're still gonna go work with a wealth management advisor, right? I think we could probably all agree on that. Um, The person who doesn't have savings of, you know, more than 60, 70,000, they have a savings problem. So a retirement income solution, that's probably not gonna save them either. It's making sure that, you know, for those folks who are probably, you know, getting up to 150, 200,000 to a million dollars who may never have access to a wealth management advisor, these in-plan solutions, they do have, especially given the new technology and the new solutions coming to market. They are substantially cheaper than annuities in the retail market, right? So that's a really good opportunity for some folks who will never have the chance to go and work with someone outside of the plan. Um, you're also seeing for plan sponsors, they're, you know, they're liking these options to have it stay in plan. And be able to keep that money in plan as opposed to, you know, people rolling out immediately and, and buying an annuity outside of the plan. Um, we could talk about
0: that's else. been a bit real change in just trend. You know, it, it it I think over the past five years, and I know T Rowe Price has done some really good research around this as well. as certainly in larger plans. I mean, I think that the, the the strategy for many years was, hey, when somebody separates from service, like let's get their money out of the plan. But yep. but you've seen, especially these larger companies now, these larger plan sponsors, that there is an appetite now. How do we keep plans? How would we keep assets in plan? Obviously record keepers are very interested, uh, are very interested, uh, very interested in that. I do think the the, the portability and the, the, the concerns about lock-in mm-hmm. Are very very real, um, and and I think if you know if I was still an advisor, you know one of the, one of the things you talked about is and in, in, in one of my philosophies was I never wanted my clients to hear about something new from somebody else. Like I wanted to be the one that that was was kind of uh, initiating that conversation, even if it was just education. Like let's put this on the radar. We're not. I would have probably slow played it myself just because I think the product. I think there's still some sticky wickets in some cases. I think it's getting, I think it's getting better. Um, but it would have been about education first. Let's have this dialogue. Let's have this conversation. Let's make our clients aware of what's happening as it relates to guaranteed income. And and really what you talked about was the complexity is, uh, and and I know, you um, know, uh, you know, Glenn at American Century's done, you know, they have their income blueprint, which, you know, is a good tool, but really what's the decision framework, right? Because yes. there's a lot of different types of products and they all have their complexities. Most advisors, insurance is super complex and helping clients understand the landscape, the marketplace, the evolution, mm-hmm. right? Initiating that dialogue, let's educate and let's talk about, and then let's figure out appetite. Is this something that we want to pursue? And if so, what's the framework that we walk through to th- think through? Because it's all about trade-off management, right? There's certain solutions and certain types of products that um, might be a fit or may not be a fit based on, you know, preferences of the plan sponsor. And then start thinking about implementation. But I think that that portability, I mean, I, I, I know, I mean, you think about, you know, and and this isn't to knock on any of the, 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 you know, insurance-based record keepers, but obviously, you know, their view of portability is like, yeah, you could leave, you know, move your plan somewhere else and it's portable because people can kind of roll out and we'll keep the assets. But plan sponsors thinking about, well, what impact is that going to have? Like, you know, what if I have uptake and now I've got less assets? I feel like I'm locked into the record keeper. What if the record keeper isn't doing a good job? And It's prudent to replace them, but now we're going to lose a meaningful percentage of our assets or now people are going to have money in two places. And there is a lot of there are a lot of complexities in uh, uh, in thinking about it. And I think that portability, I know for advisors, when I talk to them, that's a big concern that they have. What are your thoughts on that?
1: The portability, I think, um, well, first and foremost, trade-off management, I love that kind of phrase that you just used because you're exactly right. I always talk about, you know, managing the risks and which solutions can address the risks of the plan and its participants, but I love the term you use, trade-off management, because that's exactly what it is. Um, when we think about the portability issue, uh, you're exactly right. As we sit here today, um, it would be disingenuous if I said there's not an issue with portability. Um there's still absolutely a portability issue. But I think that I anticipate when it starts to change, it's going to change really fast. And what I mean by that is through technology and these middleware companies, uh, we're going to see the portability change. I think it's going to be, I'm not going to say overnight, but like all of a sudden it's going to change because we have, um, I'm going to say like a handful or less of these middleware companies that are basically creating the plumbing or the piping so that these solutions can be on more than one uh, platform. And so today it is, it's like you're stuck with that proprietary option. And so um, that creates a lot of concern. And there hasn't been up until recently a lot of incentive to really change that at all. Uh, And it's kind of been this chicken or egg, like, well, if there's not demand, we're not going to build it. If we're not going to build it, if there's not demand, and who's going to pay for it? Is the record keeper going to pay for it? Or is the solution provider going to pay for it? Mm -hmm. And so there's just been this lack of kind of incentive in this chicken or egg situation. But I do think there's been enough of this building momentum where all of a sudden it's going to change. And so, Josh, I like your idea which is really, it's thinking about this more longer term, you know, and even if you're slow playing it, starting that educational track of introducing the concept to your plan sponsor because you don't want them to hear about it from someone else. And so just one, getting educated yourself, and then two, starting to educate the plan sponsor. You might not be implementing anything for a year or two, maybe three, but you've got to at least kind of start that
0: journey. No, I, I, think that, I think that's great. And, and just briefly, Risa, what, what is yeah. Risa?
1: So Risa is actually, um, today it's an out of plan solution. So it's not, it's, it's, it's basically an assessment that an individual would go and take to figure out which annuity matches with their style analysis. So I would go in and take an assessment to figure out what is it that I need based on my individual needs. Um, And so it's meant for really an out-of-plan experience, but there's some really nice work being done to figure out, well, how does that actually, or how can that apply to an in-plan experience? Because when we think about it, um, there could be a couple of really interesting applications for, um, let's think about the needs of the plan and its participants. And today we know, as we were just talking about, really, you only have one solution you're only going to have one solution in the plan if you add an in-plan option. But if you think maybe five years out, I could anticipate that you might have two or three solutions available to a plan, right? So then how would a participant determine which, which options right for them? Or maybe if you were thinking in terms of like a managed account and some of the um, ways to gauge what the right, like allocation might be, maybe there's some, some good application there. So, um, RISA is uh, a way of basically assessing for an individual what the right uh, annuity is for them.
0: But there's work being done to see, like, in some ways, how can we retrofit this to evaluate at a plan level? Yeah. Okay. Very, very, very helpful. And and for anybody listening, um, you know, Wade Fowl is just a, a, a fantastic kind of expert on, Um you know, guaranteed income, annuities, call it whatever you will, has done tremendous kind of research and, and is definitely an authority, um, is an authority there as well. So check uh, check out some of the stuff that he uh, he's done over the years. Thanks for listening to part one of episode number 45 with Bonnie Trikel. Make sure to listen to part two where we continue our conversation.